James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that reason, or for that person, uh, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." I mentioned in announcing this new series of evening sermons that we would be studying the New Testament book of Proverbs, or at least the book of the New Testament most like the book of Proverbs. I wonder how many of you had guessed which book it is. Listen to this from Dr. Packer, J.I. Packer. Of the five wisdom books of the Old Testament... It has classically been said, I think by Oswald Chambers, though I cannot find the reference, that the Psalms will teach you how to pray, Proverbs how to live, Job how to suffer, the Song how to love, and Ecclesiastes how to enjoy. That dictum seems to me wonderfully insightful, and it is totally reinforced by James, the New Testament writer, who speaks to all these themes most forcefully within his five brief chapters. In other words, James is the New Testament's book of wisdom. Right at the beginning of his letter, we read, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach. He uses the very word that is the theme of the book of Proverbs. At the beginning of that book, you remember we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. And through the years we've learned what wisdom is and what those Old Testament wisdom books are all about. It's not guidance in particular that James is talking about when he writes if anyone lacks wisdom. <coughs> Excuse me, he's often taken to mean that as if he were talking about those fork in the road decisions that we must make from time to time should we go to this school or that, shall we marry this person or that, take this job or another, and so on. Real wisdom helps us immensely at those points of our lives, but that's not what wisdom is. It's not intelligence from on high at the point of decision-making. In the Bible, wisdom is character. It's the skill by which one lives a godly life in a world beset by temptations to sin of every kind. Wisdom, as you may remember, in the spiritual life is compared in Proverbs chapter 30 to the skill by which certain animals, conies or rock badgers, lizards and ants and the like, animals without great strength and with many natural predators, nevertheless make a success of their lives. The world suffers no shortage of ants or lizards 
And when we were in Israel this last January, we saw a great many companies. Those five books, which Dr. Packer mentioned, though I must admit the Psalms as a book is not usually included among them, though it certainly contains Psalms that everyone understands to be Psalms of Wisdom, those books are universally known as the wisdom books precisely because they are instruction in that kind of skillful living. They're instruction in the nuts and the bolts of a godly life and of God-honoring behavior. Someone has said that wisdom concerns those life lessons that are too fine to be caught in the mesh of the law. Wisdom is the next step beyond obedience to the Ten Commandments. Wisdom concerns the finer points of true, of true godliness. And that's what wisdom is in James. In 3, 17 and 18, James gives us a snapshot of true wisdom. And it's quite like the profile of a godly character that we can construct from the Proverbs. A wise person is peaceable. He doesn't start arguments. And when they break out, he tries to stop them. She is gentle. You remember this from Proverbs, don't you? A soft answer turns away wrath. He is open to reason. He listens carefully to what people say, to both sides of an argument. And he doesn't jump to conclusions. He weighs the evidence. And on and on. Do you get the point? None of this is found in the Ten Commandments. But it is essential to a truly godly life. That's biblical wisdom. In that sort of teaching and emphasis, the wisdom books are, in fact, quite different from the other books of the Old Testament. Not that we don't find some teaching about wisdom elsewhere, especially in the historical narratives, but there are no books quite like the wisdom books. They don't refer to Israel's theological foundation. You won't find anything about the Exodus, about the giving of the law at Sinai in the book of Proverbs. The theme of redemption or atonement is absent from the book. You won't read about the sacrifices or other parts of the temple worship. Abraham isn't so much as even mentioned in the book, nor is Moses, nor is David. There is no recollection of the history of Israel. You'll find no sermons or praises of sermons in Proverbs, oracles of judgment and promises of God's future mercy, such as fill most of the pages of the prophets. What you find are simple life lessons pithily put. Well, James is like that. James even emphasizes some of the very same themes that are particularly prominent in Proverbs. Wealth and poverty, our speech, dissension and unity. <coughs> but that has led to some controversy, as you know. There's nothing in the New Testament book of James about the incarnation of God the Son, about his virgin birth, of his suffering and death on the cross. There's no mention even of his resurrection from the dead. Twice, James makes reference to his coming, to the Lord's coming, in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, but says nothing more about it. More striking still, the name of Jesus Christ appears only twice, 
one of which is in the salutation of the letter. And nothing more is said about him. We have only his name. In other words, the subjects that belong to what we typically refer to as the gospel are strangely lacking. In that, James is very like Proverbs, which while it uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, (coughs) otherwise says nothing about the covenant and little more about God. His name is mentioned a number of times, but of the Lord little else is said. You may remember that because James not only doesn't include any teaching on justification by faith, and in fact makes some remarks in chapter 2 that have been taken by some, mistakenly of course, as virtually contradicting Paul's teaching about justification by faith, Martin Luther, for whom the doctrine of justification by faith was the great center of the Bible's teaching, the main point of the New Testament, thought James, as he put it, a right strawy epistle in comparison with the books of the New Testament that reveal Jesus Christ, such as the Gospel of John and Paul's epistles to the Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. For, Luther said, it has no gospel character to it. In his preface to the book, in his German translation of the New Testament, Luther damned James with faint praise. I will not have it in my Bible in the number of the proper chief books, but do not intend thereby to forbid anyone to place and exalt it as he pleases, for there is many a good saying in it. Luther did more than to express his dissatisfaction with James, though he never actually taught that it should not be treated as Holy Scripture, and though he often referred to it as Scripture in his writings, he had arbitrarily, and without any support from ancient manuscripts, placed the four books which he considered to be of doubtful apostolic authority and of secondary value doctrinally at the end of his German New Testament, which he published in 1522. Those four books composed a kind of supplement to the New Testament, and he didn't number them in his table of contents. Those books were Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. William Tyndall followed Luther in this, so the first full-scale translation of the Greek New Testament into English placed James in a secondary position at the end without a number. Now, to be sure, there were a great many Christian authorities, indeed the vast majority through the ages, who had no such doubts about the apostolic authority or the great usefulness of James. And all the more at the time of the Reformation when it was realized that actually there was no contradiction between Paul and James on the subject of justification by faith. James was usually given back its rightful place among the writings of the New Testament. As Calvin put it in the foreword to his commentary on James, if James seems rather more reluctant to preach the grace of Christ than an apostle should be, a pretty daring thing to say, we must remember not to expect everyone to go over the same ground. I am fully content to accept this epistle when I find it contains nothing unworthy of an apostle of Christ. Indeed, it is a rich source of varied instruction, 
of abundant benefit in all aspects of the Christian life. We may find striking passages on endurance, on calling upon God, on the practice of religion, on restraining our speech, on peacemaking, on holding back greedy instincts, on disregard for this present life. But I think it will help us still more to appreciate James, both for what it contains and what it does not contain, if we remember to think about it as a book of wisdom. It's very like Proverbs or the Song of Songs or Job or Ecclesiastes, precisely in its concentration on other things than the great themes of those other books. Most New Testament books are not like James. Indeed, there is really no other book at all like James in the New Testament. But that only makes its place in the New Testament secure and the more obviously important. We need wisdom today as surely as God's people ever needed it in the ancient epoch. In fact, I'm not entirely sure that what the American evangelical church today needs most desperately is not just this biblical wisdom. Proverbs continues to be an immensely popular book among serious Christians in chief part because of its great practicality. And for all that has sometimes been said against it, James remains a very popular book among Christians who find its teaching important and challenging and stirring and memorable and in all these ways immensely practical. But there's something more. As the British scholar Alex Mateer observes, as soon as we read through the letter of James, we say to ourselves, this man was a preacher before he was a writer. He addresses his readers as a preacher addresses his hearers directly, pointedly. The book is, as you may remember, direct address from beginning to end. He's talking to us. He's preaching to us. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Do not be deceived. Know this. Do you want to be shown? (coughs) And on and on throughout the letter. He's looking right at us, (coughs) hunting out our excuses, giving us our marching orders. That's what serious Christians have loved about the book through the ages. James is talking turkey to us where we live every day. He's saying what we all know we need to hear and hear again and again. In fact, Mateer goes on to suggest that it is at least plausible that sermons lie behind and beneath the letter of James. He wonders if someone didn't say to James, have you thought of publishing your sermons? Don't you think this material should have a wider audience and influence? Who knows precisely how the letter came to to have the shape it does, but in the abrupt shifts from one subject to another that we encounter through the letter, we might well conclude that what we have here are the notes from which whole sermons were then developed. (coughs) All of this reminds us of something that has been altogether too frequently forgotten in our own day. Every sermon does not need to cover the same ground. Just as every book of the Bible 
was not required to teach the very same message. The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon in the Bible, is like James in that it concentrates almost exclusively on the behavior of Christians and says virtually nothing about the gospel, about our redemption in Christ, even about our necessity to live daily by faith in the Lord Jesus. The fact is, James was a Christian writing to Christians. They shared without question the fundamental convictions of their faith. He should certainly be allowed to choose his own subject and to treat it in his own way, which is what he did. But his subject was wisdom. The author of, well, what makes all of this to me, and I think it will to you the more interesting, is that the author of the letter was none other than the Lord's own brother. The James of the title is not the James of the trio of the Lord's disciples, the James of Peter, James, and John. Nor is he the other James among the twelve, James the son of Alphaeus. James, as you can see, is a very common name. It is, after all, just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Jacob. And since Jacob was one of the patriarchs, you can bet that a great many um, Jews were named after him. In fact, there are four different men named James who are mentioned in the New Testament, three of them found in a single verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. The author of the letter, James, is the man known to Christian history as James the Just, the brother of Jesus. We know from the Gospels <coughs> that James, among the Lord's siblings, did not believe in Jesus during the days of his public ministry, but he was found among the disciples of the Lord in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. Certainly it seems likely that it was an encounter with his older brother after his resurrection that caused the scales to drop from James' eyes and brought the rest of the Lord's siblings into the company of his followers. We know from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:7 that the Lord Jesus did appear to James subsequently after his resurrection. And it's hard to avoid the conclusion that it was that appearance that made James a Christian. This is the James who became the leader of the Jerusalem church either before or after the disciple James, the brother of John, was executed by Herod Agrippa, the account of which we find in Acts chapter 12. For example, we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 17, that after Peter was miraculously delivered from prison, he went immediately to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and there he told his friends to report his escape to James and to the brothers. Obviously, by that time, James was regarded even by Peter as a leader of the Jerusalem Christians. This James, the brother of Jude and author of the letter that bears his name, then also figured in the leadership of the synod held in Jerusalem, described in Acts 15. And again, when Paul visited Jerusalem on his third missionary journey, whose conversation with Paul on that occasion we find in Acts chapter 21. 
Tradition at the time of the church historian Eusebius in the 4th century held that James had been appointed by the Lord and his apostles as the first bishop of Jerusalem, almost certainly a reading back into apostolic history, the church government that developed later. But the tradition certainly indicates what we already knew, that James had been the, if not one among many, but the principal leader of the Jerusalem church in its earliest years. In Acts 15, at the Synod, it's clear that James' authority was almost unquestioned. It was his opinion, delivered last, that became the decision of the entire assembly of apostles and elders. In that respect, he seemed to function as an apostle himself, which title he seems to have been given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.7. At the Synod, he's revealed as a man who both welcomed the influx of Gentile converts, was willing for them to be Christians without becoming Jews, as others were demanding, but also worked hard to find a modus vivendi between Jewish and Gentile Christians that would foster unity rather than provoke resentment. He was a peacemaker. He urged harmony between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Ever the wise man, he counseled Gentile believers not to rub their Jewish brothers' noses in their freedom from the ceremonial laws to which Jews still felt obliged or bound by the weight of ancient tradition, such laws as those having to do with circumcision and clean and unclean food. That kind of wide-spirited reasonableness, that capacity to put oneself in somebody else's shoes, is precisely what is meant by wisdom. And James not only wrote about it, he practiced it. We're going to get more of that wisdom that we find in James in Acts 15 here in the letter that he wrote. Another thing that's noteworthy about James is his humility. If I were the brother of the Lord, I certainly would have made a point of saying so <laughs> Excuse me, in the salutation of my letter. But James introduces himself not as the brother of Jesus, but as his servant. If I were the brother of the Lord, I certainly would have found some way to drop his name throughout my letter. Perhaps add a scintillating anecdote or two that I would know and nobody else because I was an insider in the Lord's family. For example, every reader of the letter would be fascinated to hear just what happened when Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. But he gives us nothing of that. In fact, one of the reasons why there has been such confidence through the ages that James is actually the author of the letter, not from a man claiming to be James, is that an imposter (coughs) would certainly have advertised the fact that he was a personal relative of the Lord Jesus, which James did not do. That humility on James's part is the sincerity that James will tell us is also true wisdom. Given that James the Just is its author, and we know from other evidence that James was probably martyred in Jerusalem in AD 62, the letter could not have been written later than that. However, other evidence, too complicated to go into now, suggests a much earlier date, 
a date before the synod in Jerusalem described in Acts 15. So sometime in the mid-40s of the first century. What's interesting about that is that it would make James the earliest writing of any New Testament book. In the earliest days of apostolic Christianity, writing probably to a group of Jewish Christians who had perhaps been driven out of Jerusalem and Judea by the persecution of the, fledge, of the religious authorities and were now organized in distant towns in various churches, this is what James felt he needed to say. The question that faces any interested, interested reader of the letter at the very outset is this. Why did God think it important to include in his book a letter like James, a letter that doesn't feature the gospel in the way we expect it to be featured, in fact, in a way in which it is, or that it is featured in every other New Testament book? James is a letter that does virtually nothing else but challenge Christians to faithful living, and it does so with specifics. We need to do this. We need to stop doing that. Is this not a legalism, or at least moralism? Legalism, precisely understood, is the doctrine that we earn our salvation by our obedience or good works. Moralism, precisely understood, is simply an undue concentration on behavior, on obedience, on performance, a concentration that, however inadvertently, threatens to minimize the importance of God's grace. Salvation as a gift of God, as the work of Christ, as the result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These emphases, biblical as they obviously are, do not feature in James. James is much more about Christians doing certain things and not doing other things. What's more, there doesn't seem to be any obvious organization to the material. He simply jumps from one topic to another. There doesn't seem to be any connection, any thread that we can follow throughout. And that too, it's not unlike the book of Proverbs. Now to be sure, the grace of God is not absent from the letter. James talks about the generosity of God as a reason for the life of prayer in verse 5. He reminds his readers that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights in verse 17 of chapter 1, of God's work of grace and power in giving us new life in verse 18. But the burden of his letter very clearly lies elsewhere. <coughs> Nor is the Lord Jesus at any remove from James's teaching. It's long been observed that James depends, perhaps more than any other New Testament writer, on the teaching of Jesus himself. <laughs> to be sure, he doesn't quote Jesus word for word, though chapter 5, verse 12 is virtually a citation of Matthew 5, verse 34. <laughs> but again and again, the closest parallels to James' teachings are the words of Jesus himself. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. The Lord's teaching, especially as those words are found in the Gospel of Matthew. As one scholar put it, the author of the letter seems to have been so soaked in the atmosphere and specifics of Jesus' teaching that he can reflect them almost unconsciously.
So to put it bluntly, if we have a problem with James, we need to take it up with the Savior himself. Now, with all of that said, what are we going to find in this letter? Well, we're going to find what we find many places in the New Testament, a truth put in different ways and looked at from many different vantage points. In chapter 1, verse 18, we read that those Jewish Christians to whom James was writing were Christians. They were followers of Jesus by the regenerating work of God. They were born again by the imperishable seed of the word, as Peter would put it in his letter. But that was just the beginning of their Christian lives. Salvation in its fullness was not yet theirs, as James reminds them in chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It is the chronological and theological gap between the beginnings of God's grace and its consummation in a person's life that is the theme of James. They have begun to follow Jesus, but now they must continue working toward still much more. They must grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ until finally they are with him in glory, either at death or at his coming. But the problem which faces all Christians and which James addresses as squarely as anyone in the New Testament is that being born again does not end conflict and the struggle, it actually only begins it. Christians, though we may now be, the old nature is powerful to attempt to reclaim what has been lost. The world besets us with temptations of every kind. Our sinful habits can be (coughs) excruciatingly difficult to break. James is, as it were, a bucket of cold water to the face of any Christian who thought that God's grace to him or her made it possible for him or her to relax, to stop and smell the roses, as it were, while living his or her Christian life. There are problems, severe problems, in every Christian life that must be faced. And we are sorely tempted not to face them, to accept attitudes and behaviors that are genuinely inconsistent with loyalty to Jesus Christ. We know this. We know it all together too well. There are some of us who have an acid tongue. Others of us who care way too much about money. There are others of us who have a terribly thin skin and are easily offended by sins committed against us or by words that are not sinful at all. But in any case, do not compare in weight or significance to the sins we have committed against the Lord. There are people who imagine themselves to be humble who cannot stop talking about themselves and on and on. And all of us, to far too great a degree, have these defects as running sores in our characters. No wonder James should begin where he does. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's no commandment to steadfastness in the Ten Commandments. This is biblical wisdom. 
and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The idea of Christians striving to be perfect, by the way, is another echo of the teaching of the Lord Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. But take the point. Troubles, afflictions, trials are necessary to root out our sins and to mature our faith. That's how deeply rooted our sins, our bad habits, actually are. They have to be cut out with a very sharp knife. Young Christians may perhaps be forgiven in thinking that now that they're God's children, now that their sins are forgiven, now that they have the love of God in their hearts, theirs will be an easier, more comfortable life. But it's not so. By the new birth, we were born for battle. Christians are, as one commentator put it, a special people, but they are not a protected species. Indeed, Christians should expect more trouble, not less, precisely because it is by trouble that God purifies us of what remains of our sinful attitudes and behaviors. We often don't appreciate this because we don't see our attitudes and behaviors for what they are, for the offense they are to God, for the contradiction they are of our new life in Christ. We're comfortable with them. We find the same attitudes and behaviors in other believers, so we accept them as somehow normal. We make our peace with them, and we stop worrying about them. But James will put a stop to that. That's why James has always struck a powerful chord in the Christian conscience. We know all too well that far too much of the time, our lives, our priorities, our loves, our hatreds, our attitudes toward others, our commitments of time and money, our private and our public behaviors are hard to distinguish from those of an ordinarily nice unbeliever. But every now and again, perhaps also as we read the letter of James, a shaft of light illuminates our conscience like a bolt of lightning, and we suddenly see in the darkness how great is the chasm that is opened up between what we are and what we ought to be as followers of Jesus Christ. That God cares about that gap. That he wants to see it closed is proved not only by the constant exhortations to godly thoughts and words and deeds that we are treated to from the beginning of the Bible to its end, but by the troubles that continually visit us troubles of one kind or another, sent from heaven to force us to face facts that we otherwise would be content to ignore. Do you know Christina Rossetti's splendid poem, Uphill? The first verse reads, Does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. Will the day's journey take the whole long day? From morn to night, my friend. And what is the journey that Rossetti is talking about? What is the long uphill climb that will consume our earthly pilgrimage? It is primarily the struggle, the battle with sin and temptation from the beginning of our Christian life to our final breath. I don't think most of us I'm sure it's true of myself, reckon with this most of the time. As Christians, we remain in this world. We're given to live longer in this world precisely 
to grow in holiness and purity and love and to serve God and our neighbor in ever-increasing fruitfulness. Everything else, I mean everything else, is detail. And far too much of the time, it's the detail that gets our real attention rather than the main point. God cares about every detail of your life, to be sure. But what job you work, how much money you make, how healthy you are, whether married or single, old or young, whether highly intelligent or run-of-the-mill, how much you enjoy your diversions and entertainments, none of this compares in importance to whether or not you are growing in steadfastness from which true godliness is born. Your salvation is not complete. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, we're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. That's our great calling in life. And that is what James is helping us to do. How is this done? How is holiness in the fear of God actually put on? And how is it increased in our lives? James will teach us how to increase it. But that's difficult work, precisely because, as C.S. Lewis memorably described the process of Christian sanctification, a new nature is being not merely made, but made out of an old one. We live amid all the anomalies, inconveniences, hopes, and excitements of a house that is being rebuilt. The other day, Florence and I drove by and then got out to get a closer look at the house in St. Elmo at the foot of Lookout Mountain near Chattanooga that Steve and Nikki Lewin are restoring to be their family home. For those of you who don't know, Nikki is the daughter of John and Carol Pribble, so Steve is their son-in-law. We walked around the yard full of construction materials and scrap, a mobile home on the property houses the family at present, and saw as much as we, as we could of the house. Looking in the front windows, it's obvious that much work has been done. The house has been stripped to the studs. The staircase has been exposed. The electrical service is now almost complete. But apart from the windows on the street that provide a barrier to the entrance of unwanted guests, the house's windows are simply open holes in the walls. The exterior is either new and unsurfaced or unpainted, or if it's the original, chipped and faded. The front porch needs to be completely replaced. The sheetrock has not yet been hung, the plumbing not yet installed, the house is both there and not there. One can imagine what it will someday be, but a great deal of work remains to be done. It is a perfect picture of you and of me. And the Lord's interest in your life and mine is precisely completing the house, installing the windows, the kitchen, the plumbing, the electrical fixtures, the trim, the paint, the porch, the lawn. And that's what James is all about. He'll attack the sagging porch in one paragraph 
the empty windows in another, the trim around the door frame in still another. Take a hard look at your house, your soul, your life, your behavior as a Christian, the measure of your devotion to the Lord Jesus in thought and word and deed. And then do what any wise man or woman with the resources would certainly do. Hire someone who can help you get that work done and done well. James, after all, was a carpenter's son. And almost certainly, as the oldest son in the family, he inherited Joseph's business when his father died. James knows how to build a house. Steve Lewin has a reputation for, perfect, for, for perfection, one reason why it takes him so long to get projects done. James is after perfection, too, and it will take a long time to finish this house. But then having your windows in is certainly better than having empty holes letting in the weather, and getting the sheetrock up means it's now possible to start painting the walls and attacking the trim. We often pray in our morning worship, Our soul is like a house, O Lord. It contains much that you will not be pleased to see. It is in ruins, but we ask you to remake it. Well, to read and to study and then to obey the letter of James is what someone does who's really serious about that prayer. Amen.